Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, um, hi, my name is Dominic, and uh, so glad that you're here with us um, to the Missio family. Good morning. It's awesome to see you all. Um, I've been doing some reading, and in one of the books that I've been reading, this, the author keeps quoting uh, this Scottish philosopher named Alistair MacIntyre. And in his book called After Virtue, um, Alistair MacIntyre says this. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Why don't you just sit with that for a second and, and consider that. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Right now, we're in a series uh, in the book of James. We just started it last week. Uh, Vicki did an awesome job kicking it off for us. Uh, and the James series is undertitled, kind of the subtitle is The Challenge of Faith. Uh, last week, as Vicki kicked us off, um, she gave us some background about James that I kind of want to just talk about here a little bit. Uh, James, we believe, is the brother of Jesus. James, the book, was probably written around 40 to 45 AD, which is about 10 to 12 years after Jesus died and and resurrected. Um, James was the leader of the first century church in Jerusalem. So it was a a persecuted church. It was a church that was surrounded by um, the powers of the day. And the powers of the day were Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and even the synagogue. They were all corrupt, (laughs) and they all lacked character. This is the context of the church that James was leading and he was writing to. Uh, James, another thing that's interesting about it is that I, I believe James is writing um, kind of, you could say, almost as all the first century letters were, kind of in the echo chamber of the Old Testament. I mean, that, that's what they had to go by, especially as Jewish Christians. Um, they, they knew the Old Testament well. And, and so James writes, a lot of people say, almost as if he's writing the Proverbs, He's very short, very to the point, very direct, um, very different than the Gospels, very different than the other epistles. James just kind of goes, goes right at it. And so because of that, people either usually love James as a book or they hate James as a book because James doesn't mince words. He's very direct. He just gets right to it. Another thing about James is that he actually doesn't talk a lot of high-level theology, kind of like Paul does in some of the other New Testament writers. What James is more interested is in, do you actually really believe that theology? So he's not talking about orthodoxy. He's talking more about orthopraxy. He's not really concerned about your right belief, although your right belief matters. But what he says is your right practice of what you say you rightly believe is what's far more important. So again, it causes James to be very direct and get right to it. James also, the thing that's interesting about his style and I think what is has to be recognized in his letter, is that James knew Jesus really well, right? He was was Jesus' brother. And if you want to know truth about me, you're going to go talk to my two brothers and my three sisters. They'll have 39 years of stuff to tell you. So James knew Jesus in his personal life at home. He knew him in his public ministry. James ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. He, He introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had, he had personal faith in his own brother, but also now as his savior, as the resurrected Lord. And so what James does, I believe, in his, in his book is that he's writing and talking to us, again, not about this theological high-like stuff, 
But what he's talking about is theology that he actually saw his brother Jesus live out in day-to-day life on the ground with them, particularly in three years as he lived out his public ministry. Does that make sense? And so what he's doing, I believe James is sitting here in many regards, and he's looking at Jesus and he's looking at us. And he's looking at us and he's looking at Jesus. And he's saying to us, if we are Jesus' disciples and we're living in the kingdom of God's story as Jesus was, then guess what? We're going to live like our king. We're going to live like Jesus. Because I believe as Alistair McIntyre said, he's right. We act out of and we function out of the story that we believe we are participants in. And so James is inviting us to think about the story of the kingdom of God and in light of that story of the kingdom of God that his brother Jesus came and lived out and walked out and worked out day by day, he says to us, remember that you're part of that story and in light of that, here's how you ought to act. Again, very direct, very succinct. And so this morning, again, we call this this series The Challenge of Faith and I I titled it that for two reasons. One is because It's a challenge to live by faith in Jesus amidst the world. It always has been. It always will be. But the second thing is that I believe James is issuing to us a challenge to live life in a steadfast, faithful manner with an active and vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. So he's both acknowledging the challenge that it is to live by faith in Jesus in the modern world, and even as it was in the the first century world, and he's also then issuing us the challenge to say, be faithful, be steadfast, Be who you are in Christ. Be who you are within the story of God because you do actually play a very, very important role within the story that God is writing all throughout history. So welcome this morning to the second week of James, the challenge of faith. I want to read together uh, James 1, 1 through 18. We're going to read a big chunk, including what we looked at last week, just because it gives us a bigger context. One of the things that's interesting too about the way James writes is that he's got a number of main themes. A few of them we're going to look at today. But what James does is he'll, he'll pick it up and he'll put it down. He'll pick it up, he'll put it down. He'll pick it up and he'll put it down and he'll pick it up again later in another chapter. And so he's kind of hitting, again, almost in a proverbial manner, these key statements about faith and what our lives could, should, even ought to look like if we truly are living into the kingdom of God's story in faith in Jesus. So James chapter 1, 1 to 18. Read it together with me if you would. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James, again, if you were following along, you saw he kind of picks up and puts down a couple different topics, a couple different things. So I want to work through this morning. I want to synthesize it this way to to say this. I believe that what we're going to look at in verses uh, 9 to 18 is that James brings to our attention uh, four main things. He he contrasts four main things. And I believe in, in talking about these contrasts, what he's doing is he's actually painting two different stories for us, two different stories that that we can live into. And he speaks of then, I think, three different challenges of faith. But here's the four contrasts. Here's the things that I see him contrasting for us. It's living for what's permanent versus living for what's temporary. The second contrast we see him talk about is tested in trials versus tempted by our own desires. He talks about the crown of life versus death. And he talks about we who can be swayed versus the father of lights whom does not change. Four things that he's contrasting here throughout this section of of nine verses as he's talking about it within the context of larger chapter one and really his whole book. Living for what's permanent versus living for what's temporary. Being tested by trials versus being tempted by desires. A crown of life versus death. And we who are swayed and unstable versus the father of lights who is unchanging. I want to start this morning with the end in mind. So we're going to start actually with 16 to 18 because I believe it's down there where James paints this bigger picture, kind of the echoing of the larger story of life that we are a part of and that we're really being invited to live into by God. And that James, even though he's not saying it direct, he is saying, this is the story that we need to picture ourselves in and understand that we are inhabitants of and players in if we're going to then go act out of faith in accordance with Jesus. So he starts in 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Some translations say, do not be deceived, my beloved family. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he's brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The heart of what James is saying here, I believe, in, in these two verses, these three verses, is this. It's, it's, we have to know which story we're a part of, and in order to do that, we have to make our minds up about who we believe God is. In order for you and I truly to understand and know which story we're a part of and living out of, we have to make our minds up about who God is. And what James does is he's painting this picture here. I believe he's kind of talking through what we would call the four-chapter gospel. But what he does here is first he says this. He lays it down and he says, God is a generous God. God is a gracious giver. God is the unchanging creator. God is the father of light. God is the God who has great purpose and great intention for each of our lives in the way that he lovingly created us. And God, he's saying here in these verses, I believe, he desires that we, as his beloved children, as his beloved family, again, be key players in the story that he's writing. That we be the first fruits of his creatures. In these three verses, he talks about God's character in all of those terms. Good, light, generous, giving, very intentional in how he created us as he spoke each and every single one of us into existence through the word of truth. With his very mouth, he spoke each and every one of us into creation. 
with a very specific purpose, that we might be the first fruits of all of his creatures. To, to put this in, in kind of the, the, what we sometimes, sometimes call the, the four-chapter gospel, here's what I think Paul is doing, or excuse me, what Paul is doing, what James is doing, which echoes what Paul writes about in a lot of his letters. James is telling us basically here the story of, 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 of humanity, that it's a story of creation, that, that God is, is the God who created. He spoke and things came into existence. Here he's saying that God created lovingly and he brought forth everything again by his word of truth. The second thing that that James alludes to from the echo chamber of all of the Old Testament is that there was a fall that happened. And James says here, do not be deceived. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the fact that there is a good God who created all things as the father of lights, but there is possibility for us to be deceived as we live in the creation of God. Why? Because there's a deceiver. There's a fall that happened because there's a deceiver who deceived the very first humans And ever since then, all of humanity has been born into this state and condition of sin, and we all then have the capacity and the ability to be deceived. But James says that that's not the end of the story. And you and I know that's true, thank God. The story currently is focused on redemption. A redemption that's been made possible through the good and perfect gifts that God gives, namely his son, Jesus Christ and every other good and perfect gift that he gives to us by grace that points us to and moves us towards living in an identity in Jesus Christ as the great redeemer, the one who came to overcome the fall and to put back at right the creation that God created long ago when he spoke everything into existence. And then James says also, there's a consummation, there's a new creation that's coming. That God, by the word of truth, has not only spoken things into existence long ago, but God has spoken that there is going to be someday another world. This world is the first fruits of the redemption. In this world, we get to experience the first fruits of the redemption. But there is a second fruit that's coming, a perfect fruit that is coming, a more powerful, more enduring, an eternal fruit and life and existence that is coming. Why? Because Christ died and rose again and he's coming back someday. And James says that our lives are to be a kind of first fruit now as these creatures of God living in this creation. Though it has fallen, we've been redeemed and we're living with a view towards this new creation, this new heaven, this new earth that God also has promised by his word of truth. Why? Because he's a good father. He's a father of light. And James is saying, this is the story. This is the story of creation. This is the true story, truer than any other story you've ever been told. The creation, the fall, the redemption, the consummation, the new heaven and earth that is coming. And James says, this is the story that each and every one of us are players within. And if we really understand that, and in light of understanding that, hopefully, James says now, this is how we ought to live. This is how we ought to live. And he jumps up to verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Huh? 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 Wait, what's so exalting about being a poor and lowly brother? And what's so humiliating in this world about being rich, James? Well, again, in light of the story that James just told us, what's James speaking of? James is saying, let the lowly brother, and uses the word brother meaning, let the lowly believer, the one who is a follower of Christ, let the one who lives humbly and seeks only the things of the kingdom, let them boast in their exaltation. When is that exaltation coming? Because in the day that Christ comes, in light of the story that we were just told, 
Those who are humble, those who are meek, those who are lowly, you know what they're going to receive? They're going to receive riches and goods far beyond anything they've ever imagined. Their life in the kingdom of God is going to be so great, so powerful, so amazing that it's going to be this exaltation. How could it not be anything but a step up from where they were in their humility and their meekness here on this earth? And James says in contrast to that, and the rich in his humiliation... And what he's saying is, let the rich boast in their humiliation. Well, why? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. A key word for, there for us is actually the word pursuits. James, as scripture, never says that riches nor wealth is bad. Do you hear me? To be rich is not sinful. To be rich is not evil. To have a lot of earthly goods is not, is, there's nothing actually wrong with it. What James is honing in on, again, is he's contrasting these two things. Living for the temporary versus living for the eternal. The temporary is the riches. And what he warns us of is the pursuit of riches. Because in light of the bigger story, He's saying, again, in that day when Christ comes and the new heaven and the new earth comes, that place is going to be so rich, so amazing, so magnificent that the lowly are only going to be exalted. And those who think that they're living in an exalted state and pursuing riches and wealth and pleasure and comfort here on this earth as the ultimate goal of life, they're going to be humiliated because when the kingdom comes, they're going to look at the kingdom and the beauty and the majesty and the perfection of it and all that it is. And they're going to go, oh my gosh, I worked my whole life for all this. It's nothing compared to the kingdom of God. I gave my whole self to this. This was my joy. This was my pride. This was what I sought after. Oh my gosh, I'm humiliated. I just spent 30, 90, however many years God gives you. And man, what he actually promised me in Christ is so much greater. The kingdom. Do you see how important it is to understand and know the story that you live in? In order for it to actually impact then your actions and the things that you live out? Again, wealth is not a, a, poor, a, a bad thing. And neither is being poor the ultimate thing. What James is talking about is our heart's focus and the pursuit. What are we pursuing and believing is the ultimate good, the ultimate goal of life here on this earth in light of the greater story that we know? The creation, the fall, the redemption, the consummation, the new heaven, the new earth that's coming. What are we pursuing and living for? Things that are eternal or things that are temporary? And in light of that, James then writes, verses 12 to 15. He says, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's that word again, desire, pursuits, desire. Do you hear what he's talking about? And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What James is talking about here and telling us here is further about the desires and the pursuits of the things that we're living for in life. And in light of the story, he warns us. Now, last week, Vicky taught a lot about trials and temptation because that was, that was part of, of, of verses uh, 1 through 8. And so James here, again, he's, he's echoing verses 2 through 8 when he talks about trials. And when James talked about trials, 
in verse two, he said, consider it joy when you face various kinds of trials. And she talked about some of the different kinds of trials. I believe the reason why James picks up the word trials here again and talks about that in the middle of talking about temptation and desire is that temptation is actually one of the types of trials that we face. There's all kinds of trials in this life. They can be related to health, to all kinds of different things. And actually being tempted is, is a trial. And so James is saying, when you, when you are in this trial of temptation, there's two things you got to know. One, you got to know that God allows trials of all kinds, but he does not cause temptation. Temp- being tempted is, is a trial that Jesus himself went, underwent, right? Why? Actually to increase his faith actually to encourage him. Right before he started his earthly ministry, what did Jesus experience? 40 days in the desert, tempted and being tried by who? The father of lies. The one who brought about the fall. The one who James warns us, don't be deceived by this guy. So God the father allowed Jesus to undergo trials even in the form of temptation. And, the, and the, all of Scripture would then look at us and say, then why, why would we be any different? <laughs> if Christ himself needed his faith strengthened and encouraged through the trial of temptation, why would we not be any different? Why would it not be that we too are refined? And hence, James's words to say, be steadfast. In the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, remain steadfast. Remain grounded in your faith. Remain grounded in your understanding of this story that the Father of Lights is writing and that he's invited you to be a part of. Because out of understanding that story and who God is and who you are, who he's created you to be, you can endure any temptation, any trial. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians very clearly saying that. But James writes here, he says, be really careful though what you're desiring. In order for us to endure and actually overcome the trials, the temptations, we have to be careful about our desire. We have to watch our hearts. We have to see what's going on. So he says to us here, remember the truth of who God is. God doesn't tempt you. God actually wants to give you a crown of life. And living into your temptation and into your desire will not lead to the crown of life. He says, actually, it'll lead to death. God doesn't want you to die, so God is not tempting you. The devil, he does want you to die. So guess what he's doing? He's the one that's tempting you. So James says, remember who God is, the father of lights. He says, remember, again, how how temptation happens. He says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then when desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think it's so interesting how James actually personifies temptation and sin and death here. Do you see that? He says it gives birth. It grows up. (laughs) And when it grows up, you see exactly what it is for what it is. But when it's down here and it's like preliminary stages, in the infancy stages, you think it's just this cute, nice little thing that you're playing with. But guess what, he says. If you don't actually look at this rightfully and discern the truth of your desire at 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 its base, teeny, tiny level, first birth stage, You better watch out if you don't discern, if you don't ask and pray for God for wisdom about your desires, if you don't remember the story you're in, that there is one who's coming to take the desires that are in you and to twist them so that you're tempted and fall into death. You gotta gotta, gotta be wise here. Why? Because this little thing that looks so, so cute, seems so innocent at the start, it grows and it grows and it grows. And what does it do? It gives birth to, to sin. 
And what does sin do? Sin, when it's fully grown, it's a beast. It's a beast that comes only to kill you, to steal and to destroy the life of God in you and the life of God in this world. And so in that, I believe again, he's painting two pictures, two stories. Which story do you and I want to live a part of? The story and be the characters in which we understand our desires and we live discerning our desires, submitting our desires to God as Christ did. Asking Holy Spirit to help us to see and look. Are are these desires in line with kingdom, with flourishing, with the truth of God? Or are these desires only going to lead me to death? James is saying we got to be heads up. We got to be eyes open. We got to be brutally honest with ourselves about our desires. About the things going on in our heart and in our mind. See, the thing is, you and I, because of the fall... We can't assume that all of our innate desires are are healthy or true or right and good. That would be really foolish. Because the fall that Adam and Eve underwent, it's worked its way all the way down to every single one of us. Scripture says that we're born with a sin nature, every single one of us. Christ came into the world to redeem us from that, and he's powerful to do so. But my two sons, as cute as they are, their first nature to function and act out of actually is their sin nature. I don't believe my sons are actually redeemed yet. They're not at a place or a stage where they've looked at Christ and said, Christ, come and redeem me. Come and empower me. They've not looked at Holy Spirit and said, Holy Spirit, come in and fill me and give me the wisdom to discern. My boys are are carnal. They were born carnal, just like every single one of us. And there's a point in time when we have to look at Christ and say, in light of that fall and in light of your coming, Jesus, in light of your death and resurrection, I need you. Because I know that inside my desires are carnal. I know I can't trust my heart, my desires, the things that I long for. I've acted on some of them. I've let some of them become full born. And all it's led to was hurt and pain and destruction. Now, that's not true of all our desires, right? But I think if we're all honest, we'd go, oh, yeah. I, I, I hear what James is talking about. There's times I've acted on certain desires, and I really wish I hadn't. Because the end goal of it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It actually brought pain and hurt and death to myself and to others. I didn't contribute to the story of the kingdom of God and the the imminent coming of Christ. I contributed actually to the the story of darkness in this world. Wasn't my intention, wasn't my desire, I didn't think. But if I'm honest, I didn't discern my desires. And James is saying we need to discern our desires. I want to read to you a quote from uh, Catholic father Joseph Tetlow that writes this. He says, it will be helpful to recall what we believe about God's call to us. God himself has hopes for us in our life world. I'll pause for a second there and say, one of the hopes that God has for us in the words of James is that we be a first fruits, that we we, we bear fruit for the kingdom. So God himself has hopes for, uh, for us in our life world, how we will develop as persons and what contribution we will make to the reign of God now and in the accomplished kingdom to come. For this reason, God's passionately creative love raises specific desires in our spirits. God raises in us deep desires for himself and for what he is creating. And we find that we are to value in those desires and what we are to do as well. Of course, our desiring and our valuing are affected by our sin. And we need always to be purified and brought closer and closer to the desires and values of Jesus. I'll read to you, too, a quote from uh, Dr. Larry Crabb. He wrote a book called uh, A Different Kind of Happiness. And speaking of desire, he writes this. He says, You are on the narrow road, 
if you are keenly aware that two stories are being told in every minute of every day, one by Satan and one by God. Travelers on the narrow road sense the appeal of both stories, too often with a stronger attraction to the wrong one. But they prayerfully discern which story is which and to what end each story is leading. As the Holy Spirit works, they get wind of the stench of Satan's relationship-deadening but attractively disguised story, and they catch the fragrance of God's relationship-building and attractively demanding story. And they increasingly come to understand what it means to tell the story their redeemed hearts most long to tell by how they relate. Two stories being played out in this world. And you and I are contributors to those stories based upon what we do with the desires within us and how we live into them. And so again, James says, don't be deceived, dear family. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Desire is not a bad thing, but desire needs to be discerned. We need to test, Scripture would even say, test the spirits. Test the spirit within you. This thing that I'm desiring and wanting to do as it relates to finances, as it relates to relationships, as it relates to sexuality, as it relates to power, as it relates to my plans, as it relates to everything that I I have and been entrusted to discern in this world, I need to stop and ask the questions, which story am I desiring this out of? And which story, if I live into this desire, which story will it perpetuate and contribute to? Again, the story of creation and of redemption or a story of brokenness and of lies and of darkness that the enemy has come just to perpetuate in this world. Told you, James doesn't mince words. He's very honest. He's very clear. And I'm grateful for that because I need to hear this. I'd love to be able to stand in front of you as your pastor and tell you all of my desires are pure. Every single desire I have, it's all been redeemed. I'm all good. No, 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 no. This is my life, you guys. This is my life every day, trying to discern the different desires that I have. God, if I live into this desire, what kind of fruit does this bear in this world? Does it honor you? Does it glorify you? Does it welcome and woo others to want to desire you too? Or is this just about me? Or is this just using someone else for my purposes? What, what is the ultimate end here? Here's a couple questions practically. Because James writes real practical, I want to give you a couple practical things. I think here's three questions to ask for discerning. Is this, God, in your word of truth, in his word of truth, does God tell me this will lead to life or death? There's, there's, there's things that God has written very, 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 very clearly about in his word. Some things I'll, be, I'll agree with you, he's not written so clearly about them, so it's a little trickier. But there are some things that God has written so clear about, it's, it's literally written on a piece of paper. It's black and white for us to see. And in those cases, James says, ask for the wisdom and go to the word of truth and look at it. And if God has said it's a good thing and a blessing, go walk in it. If God has warned you from it, James says, don't be a fool. Don't don't, don't mess with that little baby. Because that little baby is going to be a monster real soon and it'll bite your head off. So we need to ask God, in your word of truth, God, do you tell me that this thing that I'm desiring right now, is this going to lead to life or is it going to lead to death? In accordance with your truth and the big story that you've written and you've called me to be a part of. Second question, does it move me and others towards flourishing? Does it move me and others towards closer to kingdom reality? Or does this move me and others or one of us just closer to demise? 
Again, the story we're in, we're, we're central players in it, but in community and in a world context that God's called us into. My desires aren't, aren't just about me. The fulfillment of them never should be just about me. Third question, to put this in the language that we've been talking in, does fulfilling this desire lead to relationship, to depth, to healing, and to freedom? Does fulfilling this desire, does it lead to closer relationship with God and closer, healthier relationship with those around me? Does fulfilling this desire, does it lead to, to depth? We, we define depth as, does it lead to trust, trusting God? So if I'm doing this desire, is, am, I, am I acting on this desire because now I can actually control more stuff and actually don't have to live by faith? Or does acting on this desire cause me to be more dependent upon God and to actually trust more? Does this, does this desire, if I were to act on it, if I were to let it become more full grown, is it going to lead to healing in my life, wholeness in my life and others around me? Or is this again actually going to cause more pain and hurt and suffering? If I act on this desire, God, Holy Spirit, help me discern this. Is this going to lead to freedom? Me being set free from, from chains of bondage and sin that the deceiver has put in my life? And is it going to lead others around me to freedom too? Or is this just going to mean I, I remain shackled in the stuff that, I've, that I was born into in sin? Or is it just going to shackle others into areas of sin that, God, you don't desire them to be in? Holy Spirit, help me discern this. God, James would say, ask for wisdom. God, give me wisdom to discern this. You guys, I believe James calls us to live like this. Again, because James was Jesus' brother. And James walked with Jesus. During his ministry, I believe this is what James saw Jesus do was live life constantly dependent upon God the Father, discerning his desires and asking for wisdom in the midst of his desires. Greatest example of that, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus actually tells his disciples, he says, hey, stand over there for a bit and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And Jesus goes and he prays, and what does he pray? He says, Father, I, I, this desire that I have to not go to the cross, <laughs> I, have, I have a will and a desire to actually not go do what you want me to do, Father. But, but help me discern this. And he wrestles. And in the end, what does he say? What does he say in the end? Not, not my will, not, not what I desire, Father, but your will, your desire be done in and through my life in this world to bring what? To bring relationship and depth and healing and freedom to this whole world. And I don't think that was just a one-off. We're told throughout scripture that Jesus constantly went away to lonely places. What do you think he was doing in that lonely, quiet place? I think he was discerning. I think Jesus was a full and complete human just like you and I are. Scripture actually tells us that. But he was without sin. How did he live without sin? I think because Jesus was really honest about his desires. He was aware of them. Do you think for once, I honestly, and some of you are going to go, whatever. I think Jesus had, had sexual desires on this earth. He, he was a man. He, he was fully human. I think he actually may have desired relationship. Remember, desiring is not the sin. So to say that Jesus, I'm not saying he sinned. But I think what he did was he discerned, God, what, do you call, what kind of life are you calling me to? Am I, am I to step into this relationship? And the father says, nope. <laughs> when people came at him, and it says they came and they pushed him to the edge of a hill to kill him, to push him off the edge, we read, yeah, and he just walked and passed right through them. You don't think Jesus in his humanity, again, as a man, 
with hundreds of people surrounding, coming at him, you don't think for a second he had a desire to just, come on, man, woman in here, all of us, if so many people are coming at us, your desire gets up and you want to protect yourself. You don't think Jesus felt that desire? But I think in his anger even, or righteous anger, he didn't sin. What did he do? He discerned. Father, am I supposed to right now show the power that you have, that you want to, inf- like through my life, to move all of these people just like you're going to move a stone? Should I just move them all out of the way? Or am I just to be chill? Am I to walk through here and let you do something different? You don't think when he's standing in front of Pontius Pilate and he spits in his face and they mock him and they do all that stuff and they're beating him as he's about to go to the cross, you don't think he had desire then to, again, push him away, to fend for himself? If not, I don't think he was fully human. But scripture tells us he was fully, fully human. But he was without sin. How? Because, again, he knew his desires. He was aware of his desires. He didn't live into them all without checking Nor did I don't think Jesus denied them and pretended like they weren't there. Again, the garden shows us Jesus understood, I've got desire. And God, some of these desires are not in line with your will and your work, Father, that you want to do through my life. So God, in this moment, I'm I'm stressing over it. I'm even sweating blood over it. And I'm asking you, God, take this cup from me. That's my greatest desire is to not to have to go to the cross. But not your will, mine be done. Give me wisdom, God. What would you have me do? And he stands up and in love for you and me, out of humility and submission to God the Father. Dying to that desire and taking up the desire of God, birthed in his life through the Holy Spirit. He goes to the cross so that you and I can be inhabitants of this greater story. This story of creation, of fall, of a great and beautiful and glorious redemption and of a beautiful, promised, glorious new heaven and new earth that is sure to come one day. And in the midst of it, James says, brothers and sisters, family of God, don't be deceived. Live with your eyes open. Discern your desires. Take them before God, every single one of them, in order that you would live as first fruits of his creatures. That as you live this discerned life, as you live this life of steadfast faith, you live in such a way that people around, they see your life, And it's bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. They don't see destruction. They don't see anger and hatred. They don't see control. They don't see death and darkness. They see everything in your life stewarded as a good gift from a good father who is the father of light. And your life now is a fruit that people can go and take a bite of and taste and see how good it is to live by faith in Jesus Christ as an inhabitant of the story of the kingdom of God. And they say, I want to go live that challenge of faith too. James is going to continue to pick up these themes throughout. But over the last two weeks, I hope you get a sense of of, of what we're wrestling with for the next couple weeks. And I hope you would join me and the leadership team in saying and believing that, you know what, to actually look through this stuff and to wrestle with this stuff honestly will move us closer in relationship. (laughs) It'll cause us to be people of depth. It's looking and talking about the hard things, these true things and discerning them that will allow us to experience healing and freedom, the things that God has invited us to live into this year. So I want to invite Kelly and the worship team to come up. 
And I want to invite you, invite all of us to come to this table, to come prayerfully, to come humbly, and yet to come boldly. (laughs) Because what this table represents is the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins in order that you be free from guilt, from fear, from shame, from being a slave even to the desires that we're born with. This table is what puts us in relationship and puts us in a place where we're people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who now can discern the things of the Spirit and can discern the life of God within us so that we can actually live into it. This table is a great invitation to live into the kingdom and the gospel story that God is writing and at work primarily through his son, Jesus Christ, but he's invited us to be partners with. And so this morning, come. Come and discern. Come and receive. Come and find the love of God here for you at this table and an invitation to live as first fruits for his kingdom. Amen?